Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start 3 through 6. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This this text and all the way through verse 14 in the original Greek does not look like your English translation. In the original Greek, this is one sentence. 202 words long is Paul's run-on sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. Right? Paul does that at times. If you look at some of his other writings, he has long sentences. And they're just, this one especially is just theologically rich and deep. And so this is 12 verses long and it's 202 words. But look at how he begins this, this phrase. Look at verse 3 again with me. How does he start this? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Blessed be. This is a general comment of worship. Guys, he is attributing praise to God. He begins the whole book with praise and exaltation to God. I think we need to just see this right from the start. Worship is not a secondary issue to Paul. With everything that's coming in Ephesians, worship is not secondary. It's primary. Guys, it's primary for you and me, whether, whether we realize it or not. Worship is primary, whether we think so or not. Think about it. Think about everywhere we look, people are praising something. Sports fans are praising their favorite team. They, they are. Pete, you and I are praising our favorite restaurants to people. Right? Oh, you've got to eat here. It is fantastic. We're, we're praising all kinds of things. Our favorite bands and musicians. You've got to listen to this new group. Jacob and I were talking about music, musicians this morning. We, we do that. We praise all of these different things. We even praise our favorite coffee shops. We praise our favorite movies. That was my wife. <laughs> coffee. Um, we, we praise our favorite movies. We, pr- we praise our favorite authors. All of these things we attribute praise to. And so if you really think about it, I don't think we have a problem expressing praise in, in, our, in our culture as people. And to be honest, the truth is, I think, I think the phone is ringing, actually. You want to grab that, Kathy? Thank you. Um, I think that it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that we attribute praise, right? We were designed for praise. God created this world for us to enjoy. I, I'm a believer that there's nothing inherently wrong with the game of football or, the, or basketball. Those sports, there's nothing inherently wrong with that sport. There's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying uh, an iced latte. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying good music. Or a good movie. But here's the thing. Because our hearts are just so inclined to worship stuff, we oftentimes will begin to start worshiping the creation 
rather than the creator. Right? Our hearts are just kind of bent that way, whether we like to think so or not. And so um, Paul talks about this in, in Romans chapter 1. When something, when we start to enjoy something more than we enjoy the person who gave it to us, that's when the sin in our life becomes an, a, a roadblock to the gospel to preach it in, in our hearts. When we elevate those created things above the creator, that's when we get into trouble. Guys, it will be a wonderful and satisfying thing when the things that glorify God become the things that we enjoy the most. You see what I'm saying? When the things that we enjoy the most are actually the things that God says glorifies Him the most. When those two things line up, and that's, I think, how Paul could say, no matter what the situation, I'm content. In Ephesians chapter 1, there is, if we just read through three verses, um, and three or four verses, and there is a lot of content here. There is just major theological stuff in this passage, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to wrestle with it over the coming weeks as well as today. But I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying, what Paul is getting at. Look at where we are starting in all of this. The beginning point of everything Paul is about to say is worship. Blessed be God. Worship. So Paul, in his very rational and structured way, he offers praise to God. And then it's almost as if he could imagine like the next question that was going to come. Someone might ask him, well, why bless God? So Paul goes into like these answers. Well, here's why we're going to bless him. It's just reason after reason of why we should worship this God. And so Paul starts by reminding his listeners all the incredible blessings that are theirs in Christ. In Christ, in Him. That phrase, in fact, in Christ, in Him, shows up 11 times in these 12 verses. It's a major theme, and Paul is obviously driving at something here. Um, Speaking of driving, how many of you guys enjoy going over speed bumps? Only kids and Liz Cannon are, are raising their hands. Okay, Nikki and I lived in a subdivision in Troy for a long time, and there was lots, loads of kids. Uh, and about a year before we ended up moving, it was partly our fault because we never went to the homeowners association's meetings, but they decided to put speed bumps in our subdivision. And the first few times that you drive somewhere, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but the first few times of driving, I'd forget about the speed bumps until guess what? wham, you'd hit them and your drinks are sloshing everywhere and kids are flopping out of their seats. And all of a sudden, my wife secured our children, so that didn't happen. Uh, but you get the idea. You just, you forget, like, I'm used to driving by this house hundreds of times and I forgot that there's a, a speed bump there. I think there's some speed bumps in the text that are meant to, to, to get us to hold on, slow down, pause, notice what's happening here. We're tempted to, to be lulled to sleep by familiar words. Undoubtedly, you guys have read this text before. Ephesians chapter 1. It's not tucked away. It's not like the book of Jude or some obscure book like Philemon. Philemon or how, how do you say that? I say Philemon, but okay. 
Um, but it's not, it's not one of those. It's just, it's right there. We've read this text before, but there's a tendency to just kind of be lulled to sleep by these things that we've heard so much. Words begin to get familiar and they start to lose their depth and they start to lose their impact. And I don't want that to happen this morning. So Paul says in verse three that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the only time that Paul in all of his writings ever uses this kind of a phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I think there's a reason. I think Paul is getting at the truth that everything that Christ has accomplished on our behalf is both eternal and secure in the heavenly places. What did Jesus teach about the kingdom of heaven? He taught that in heaven, there's neither moth nor rust nor thief can disturb the inheritance that we have. It's locked in. It's final. And so these blessings are eternal and they're secure because they're both given by God and they're secured by God. They're protected by God. There's something else here too that I want us to notice. All the blessing that Paul is about to describe in the next few verses in great detail, they're not just for your enjoyment. They are. He says they're yours in Christ. They are for our enjoyment, but they're not that alone. They're also for the praise of His glory. That's the phrase that we hear regularly. They're for His good pleasure, some of your verses or translations say in verse 5. They're not just for our enjoyment and benefit. They're for the glory of God. They're for the namesake of God Himself. And so the blessings that Paul speaks of are from God And they're for God. Verse 3 says that we have been blessed by God the Father. And verses 6, 12, and 14, looking ahead a little bit, they tell us that we have been blessed to the praise of His grace or to the praise of His glory. All the things that Paul's about to discuss are from God and ultimately are for Him. Guys, Christians, do we view the blessings of Christ in our life this way? Do we see our salvation in this light? We should absolutely be thankful for Christ's sacrifice. But I think sometimes it kind of stops there. We come to church and we sing songs about the cross and the blood and we are thankful and then we move out of church and then we don't think about it again until we come back into church. Sometimes we thank God for our salvation, but forget that that message, he never intended just to stop with us. The message of the cross was never meant just for you alone. It was never meant just for me alone. We're called to go, and Jesus said, make disciples. It's obvious that God never intended sinners be saved and then rarely or never talk about it. The whole book of Acts, much of the New Testament, reinforces this idea. We are to go and preach the gospel. So believer, we ought to be thankful that the blessings that are ours in Christ are for us, but they're also for the world. They're for the nations. And so we should go, as Jesus commanded, with the same message that changed us. And so this is God's design displayed in Ephesians 1. The wonders of God's love for his people are to be preached throughout the earth to the praise of his glory. It comes back to the glory of God. Why did God choose us to bless? Why did God choose us to bless us with this kind of salvation? 
for the praise of his glory, that he might be glorified. Isaiah tells us that God saves people for his own glory, those exact words. The issues that Ephesians 1 deals with undoubtedly are not small issues. They're monumental because the concern is, is God and his glory. There's another thing that's kind of, I do think, tucked away here. We see the Trinity in these verses, in verses 3 through 14. Maybe you didn't catch it, but the triune nature of God is shown here. Look at verses 3 through 6 that we looked at today. This is the work of the Father. God, the Father, is creating for himself a people even before he created the world. He chose, it says, he predestined, he adopted men and women, boys and girls, to be his own. Verses 7 through 12, they talk about the work of the Son. Through Christ's work, we have redemption and forgiveness through his blood. In the fullness of time, it says that all things are going to be united back to him. Because it started with him. Verses 13 and 14 talk about the work of the Spirit. The key words here are sealed. You'll see them there and guarantee. God, the Spirit, marks us out as belonging to Him by giving us ears to hear the gospel and then sealing us for eternity in Christ. When we see things like this, when we see the real and triune nature of God in this way, how are we supposed to respond? How did Paul respond? In praise, in worship. A true revelation of the nature of God, I think, will always result in praise from his people. When we see God for who he really is, worship just flows. Worship comes out. It's almost like we can't even help it, not that we would want to. We cannot forget, we cannot miss it as we continue on in this chapter, these things, because there are lots of other things that we're going to talk about things to learn that we have a tendency to get preoccupied by. And so I'm staying on this intentionally to help us understand Paul begins with worship and so would we. The things that we see ought to spur us on in that way, ought to cause that to well up in us. Because the truth about God in Ephesians, as I mentioned, are are intended to be speed bumps, to cause us to, to slow down and not only get our attention, but to to begin to create us into a people of praise. Here's a question for self-evaluation. How confident are you that you are forgiven by God and that on the day of judgment you will be free of condemnation? How confident of that are you? If I asked you that and asked you to give a number on a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 being the most confident, where would you... Put your confidence, your assurance. I would venture to say that many would be seven in the seven to eight range. We're mostly sure about our standing before God, but you know, we're still kind of hesitant. We're still not entirely sure. Maybe you're there today. I think many of us would be. There's this almost palpable, profound uneasiness when we speak of this kind of a thing. Most of us, I think if we're honest, we kind of waver back and forth. So sometimes maybe we're an eight on that scale. Sometimes we're a six. Um, But think about why we would say that. 
Just evaluate why, why we ranked, why you ranked yourself wherever you did there this morning. Most of the time, it's because it's, it's linked to how well or how poorly we have lived up to God's standards, isn't it? That's what that feeling of assurance or uneasiness is linked to. I've, I've lived in my life with it as well. In truth, what does this show about our hearts? It shows that we are prone to reverting, to relying on our own good works that we think make us right before God. In truth, God, through the book of Ephesians, I think is going to remind us, he's going to show us that salvation is all of God's grace and none of our own effort. Now, I'm not saying that once you've been saved that you do nothing. We'll get there. That's not what I'm saying. God has created us, chapter 2 of Ephesians says, for good works. There is stuff for believers to do. But as far as the initial act of God's saving grace in our lives, it is all of God and none of us. Charles Spurgeon, many of you have heard that name before, lived in the 1800s, and he wrote a lot of really good things. But he wrote a, a short book, which you can actually get the PDF online for free. I did, and I printed it out. And in it, it, well, it's called All of Grace. In fact, if uh, I would say for anybody who's listening later on in the week, maybe that isn't here this morning and is listening, if, if all you have time for is my sermon or to go read this book, turn off my sermon and go download this little booklet and read it. It will probably be, it will assuredly be a better use of your time. <laughs> and that's not because I'm such a lousy preacher, although that could be argued. It's just because this is so good. And I want to read a couple of uh, phrases from him in this. He talks right off the bat, he starts talking about Romans 4, verse 5. And that, that verse says, To him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that's the verse that Spurgeon is talking about. And he says this. He says, You must be somewhat surprised to read a text like this. According to the natural legacy of our hearts, We're always talking about our own goodness and our own worthiness and we stubbornly hold to it that there must be somewhat in us in order to win the notice of God. But God sees through all deceptions and comes not because we are just, but to make us just. Because he says, he justifies the ungodly. Guys, our fallen hearts from the garden, our fallen hearts lead us to believe that we aren't the people that God, that Paul is referring to in the, in that text. The ungodly folk that God justifies. We don't want to be that ungodly person that Paul's referring to because most of us would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty good. And, and then we'll point a finger to someone else that we're better than, right? That's usually how we compare ourselves. I'm better than this person, so I must be okay. Other people have never been the standard for righteousness. Only Christ is. But we think that. We think, well, I'm a good person. He's talking about people that are honestly just really bad. You know, like that person. Listen again to Spurgeon. If any of you are giving yourselves to such proud airs, listen to me for a little while. You'll be lost as sure as you are alive. I have no gospel to preach the self-righteous. No, not a word of it. Jesus Christ himself came not to call the righteous, and I'm not going to do what he did not do. If I called you, you would not come, and therefore I will not call you under that character. No, I bid you rather look at the un- look at that righteousness of yours, 
till you see what a delusion it is. And this is funny to me. He says, it's not half so substantial as a cobweb. Be done with it. Flee away from it. Brothers and sisters, until we believe that we are unworthy of God's grace, we'll never receive it. We can never receive it until we truly know that we're unworthy of it. Think about what Jesus said. He said he didn't come for the people who believed they were well. He came for the people who knew they were sick. If we cannot manage this view of ourselves, understanding the doctrines of grace contained in Ephesians is going to be just almost impossible. So look back at our text in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Look at some of the phrasing that Paul uses. He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, He, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now just those two phrases, those two sentences are huge. Paul uses some words in these verses that cause many of our ears to kind of perk up. And for many of us, it kind of causes our whole bodies to stiffen up though, doesn't it? If we're honest. Words like chose, predestined, adopted. I just want to remind us of something that I think is obvious here. These are, these are Bible words. I didn't change these words. Our translations that you have now don't wildly change the meaning of these words. These are Bible words. These are words that they've not taken liberties with the text to insert these in here because of their philosophies. These words mean the same thing in the original Greek. Chosen means selected. Predestined means determined beforehand. For the believer, I think these words shouldn't inspire stiffness and doubt. I think they should inspire awe and worship like the peaks of the mountains that Jason talked about. You see those for the first time and it, it just takes your breath away. This is, I think, what this is intended to do for the believer. They did it to Paul, didn't they? He started with worship. But guys, God choosing is not a new concept for Paul. Paul's not the only one who taught this. It's a really the whole Bible is a book of election. Let me just give you some for, for, for instances. The creation of the world was God's choice to display his beauty and his glory in it. God selected Abraham. He called him. He chose him to bring blessings to the nations. God chose the nation of Israel to be a light among those nations. And there are Old Testament books filled with all the evidence of reasons why God shouldn't have chose them. And yet he did. He chose them. Jesus chose 12 disciples out of many others that he could have in order to turn the world upside down. God chose to crush his own son on the cross. And Jesus chose to submit to that death on the cross so that sinners would be made righteous. In Ephesians and in many other New Testament books, we read that God chose individuals for salvation. Guys, even Jesus talked of this. We read through John chapter 17 as we uh, took the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago. In that chapter, multiple times, Jesus says, the people whom you have given me, 
when he's praying to the Father. In fact, verse 2 of John 17, Jesus says, You have given him, himself, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Their sovereign choice plainly taught by Jesus right there. See if you recognize this. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It's consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. Did anybody recognize that? That comes straight out of the Baptist faith and message. There's a section called God's purpose of grace. And that's what it says right there. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 1 again. God chose him, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever even created. God chose sinners to be saved for a purpose. Look at what it says. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Salvation is God's choice, guys. One that he made not just before we were born, but before the world was created. Nothing can thwart God's plan. It was established and it was determined beforehand. Your sinfulness, the result of sin in the world, the result of sin by our nation does not thwart God's plans. Because his plans were established before any of this was ever even a thought. But before we get lost in the details here, I just want to kind of notice the purpose that I pointed out briefly just a second ago. What is God's purpose in election? Holiness. Holiness. That we would be holy and blameless before him. God sovereignly saves sinners so that they might be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose of God's saving grace. God's purpose and will. We find this out. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, God's purpose and will for the life of the believer is to conform us to the image of his son more and more. And that's how all things work together for good is because he's forming us through those things into the image of Jesus. That's his purpose. That's his will. Positionally, in God's sight, we are as holy as Christ is holy. Let that sink in for just a second. Positionally, in God's sight, we are as holy as Christ is holy. But you know, you know it, you feel it, there is work yet to do in your heart. There is work yet to do in your life. God is doing that in you now. And we just talked in our home teens in Philippians chapter 1, that's he who started the work is faithful to complete it. And brothers and sisters, God's faithfulness is based on the fact that he did this all before the world was created. He had this all planned and thought through. Why would this matter to God? Why does it matter? What would be the effect of sinners being made holy? Same reason Paul gave earlier. For the praise of his grace, the glory of his name, the stated reason for calling the nation of Israel was so that they would be a light among the nations. You guys remember reading that? That they would be a light among the nations. That they would be, in essence, a reflection of God to the world around them. They were the called out ones. And you see in in many Old Testament books, we see all the rules that they were given to set them apart. God gave laws and instructions so that they would be different. 
so that they would look different, so that they would act different than the world around them. Why? Because they were God's people. He set his affection on this people, not because of anything that they had done, but because of his sovereign choice, and they were to look different. Guys, it's the same for believers today. God chooses people today. He calls people out of their sin in order to look and act and think and be different than the world around us. God saves sinners to be holy and blameless. He did it then and He does it now that we would be a reflection of Him to the world around us. And guys, when His people, the people who were chosen by Him before the foundation of the world, when we accomplish His purpose in being blameless and in being holy, as this verse says, the world takes notice of this. And God is glorified. Christian, isn't that what you want? I I almost guarantee you that if I asked every person in this room, well, don't you want God to be glorified in your life? Very quickly, you would say yes. This was the purpose for which you were saved. To glorify God. To be holy and blameless before Him. To display His goodness and grace. Positionally, we have that. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies we'll come to see. But here, none of us feel that. Because we're, we're marred by sin. Paul wrestles with this in Romans chapter 7. We all identify with that. He's still working in us. Look at verses 5 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, 5 through 6. In love, He, God, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Why did God adopt us? For the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace. The, The King James Version, if you have that, maybe other translations, they say, for the good pleasure of His will. It pleased God to do this. It delights God to bring people who have no hope, who have no family, who have no resources, no way to be made whole on their own. It pleases Him to adopt those people into His family. Isn't that what adoption is? People today, it's the same way. We adopt people who have no hope oftentimes, who have no family who have no resources, who have no hope of being made whole on their own, we adopt them in. This leads us to our next point. If God has saved you, brothers and sisters, if you are His child, then you are here on purpose. It's not an accident. You are not an accident. You're here on purpose. You are part of God's plan, a plan that was established long ago before the world began. In reality, I think the truth of election, the doctrine of election, is often misunderstood because people only think that some are welcome. Well, the doors only open to some people. The Bible teaches that all may come in. God's offer of saving grace is a genuine offer made to all. But Romans 3 teaches us why not all come and respond to that offer. Because it says, no one seeks after God. Our, our throats are like open graves. 
All have sinned. You know that verse from Romans 3.23. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody. That is our nature. And Paul teaches our will is bound to that. Our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, plunged us into sin by their sin, and now our wills are bound to sin. Paul makes that clear in the first few chapters of Romans. Our wills are bound by this. And even Romans chapter 6 talks about all the ways that we find creative ways to sin again and again and again. Ephesians chapter 2 is coming up, and it's going to tell us the reality about who we are apart from Christ. Right there at the beginning, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Can dead people hear? Can dead people respond? No. There has to be a work of the Spirit in your heart before you even can hear the truth of the gospel or even hope to to respond to it. This is what Paul is teaching in these verses. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So if anyone is saved, it has to be because of the sovereign and elective grace of God. If God didn't choose, no one would come because we're bound by sin. So there's, there's a genuine concern from some people at this point in the conversation. They say, well, if God chooses and we have nothing to do with it, well, then why do we need to do anything at all? If God's sovereign and he's going to do it all anyway, why do we even have to fool with it? His will is going to happen anyway. Or some people kind of talk about this and they say, well, if God chooses, then why do we even need to evangelize? Why do we need to tell anybody about the gospel if God's going to choose them and they're going to be saved no matter what? These are legitimate questions. Let's think about these. There is definitely an aspect in all of this that God is God and we are not. So first off, I just want to kind of clarify and just say that Uh, Isaiah 55 reminds us that we are not God, right? That's the one, that's a text that says as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. It's actually God speaking to us, and he says, higher are my ways than your ways. God is God, brothers and sisters, and there's not a person here that is going to know everything that God knows. We were never meant to have this knowledge. So here's my question. Are you okay with that? This is not a cop-out. This does not mean that we are not thinking Christians. That's not what I'm suggesting here. But are you okay with just saying, God, there are things that I cannot understand, and I will just leave them to you? Are we okay with saying that? I hope that we are because this is, this is reality and it's faith. We therefore have to affirm in this conversation, in this text, even that there are things that we just can't fully grasp and wrap our minds around. But I think that there are absolutely some things here that we should affirm that we do know about God. Just look at these things, these things that we can understand and can affirm. Verses 4 and 5, God is perfectly loving. It says, in love, he did this. God is loving. In verse 5, God is eternally sovereign for the creation of the world. Verses 6 through 8, God is gloriously gracious. By his grace, he has done these things. Verse 8, again, God is infinitely wise. He knows Now, while we cannot know everything that God knows, we can learn of his character that we see here, and we can learn to trust him more. So what what about evangelism? 
God chooses, why do that? Doesn't election and God's sovereign choice just absolve us from sharing the gospel? I think it's the exact opposite. I think that it's contrary to that. Because election does not lessen the need to tell people about Christ. It actually gives hope to evangelism. We have confidence that when we go and share the gospel, when we follow the mandate of Jesus, the command of the Father to go and make disciples, that there's hope that that's actually going to happen. None of us have the power to change someone else's heart, do we? So we have to rely on the power of God doing what he's done in our heart to someone else. And so it gives us hope as we go. It gives hope that the person, even with the hardest heart, can be changed because the gospel and the power of God is working in ways that we cannot see and in ways that we cannot even understand. Guys, no one is going to be able to get a free pass or blame God when they stand before him that he did not choose them. No one can accuse God of being unloving in that way. The biblical truths of God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility to respond in belief run side by side throughout Scripture. So I just want to make that clear. I'm not saying that you get to do nothing in all of this. Look, Just looking ahead just briefly in Ephesians 1, look at verse 13. Look at what we see. We've already seen God's sovereignty and salvation, but look at, look at this. It dwells in harmony with man's responsibility because it says, when you have heard the word of truth, believe in him. That's man's responsibility is, is to believe. Spurgeon was asked one day about how he can reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And his answer is short and I think really helpful. He says, I don't need to reconcile two friends. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they don't need to be reconciled. They're like, they're like two tracks of a train. They run side by side, allowing things to work as they should. They may never cross, but they run right alongside one another. They're both as true as the other. And we see this in Scripture. Think about some of these missionaries that affirmed this doctrine. Andrew Fuller, John Patton, David Brainerd, William Carey. These guys all believed in the sovereignty of God, and yet they gave their life to missions. We have to believe in order to be saved. And Paul talks about this in Romans again. He's, he starts talking about how, how will they hear unless someone preaches. He's maybe the most famous and greatest missionary of all, the Apostle Paul is. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the primary texts where we hear information on this topic of God's sovereignty. But interestingly enough, chapter 10, what I just quoted, is right in the middle. Paul's concern for the lost and his thrust towards evangelism. So he affirms this doctrine of God's elective and saving grace, and yet he gave his life to go and to preach the gospel. How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless some are sent? Paul says, no doubt this is challenging to wrap our minds around. This takes wrestling, sometimes a long time. No doubt there are some who are going to oppose this kind of teaching, but it's usually based on an opinion of God. Let me explain what I mean. 
You've probably heard, I don't know if you have, but I've heard it before. People say that you explain something about God and they say, well, that's not the kind of God I believe in. Well, that's not the God I believe, right? You guys have maybe heard that before. In this, I've, I've heard it in this discussion. Well, that's not the kind of God that I believe in. My response is in gen, as gentle and loving as I can is, is still the truth. And it's, it's this, if predestination and election are biblical truths that are wrapped up in God's character, right? It was according to his good pleasure. If this is, if this gives God joy, then I would say someone who says that that's not the God I believe in doesn't really believe in the God of the Bible. They, they believe in a God that they want to believe in. They believe in a God of their own creation. Going back to Romans chapter 9, Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Can the clay accuse the potter of forming him wrong? Oh, if you really think about it, the person who's upset with God because of his sovereign choice and salvation is usually someone who at the core thinks that they know better than God. Now, most people don't on the outset think that, that they know better than God. But if they, if they fight this and they refuse to believe, this is what they're saying. This person has elevated their morality and their understanding above that of even God himself. Because usually they're saying, well, that's not fair or that's not loving about God. So are we more moral than God is? Are we more knowledgeable? Can we judge what's right and wrong better than he can? Are we kinder? Do we think that we're more loving than God himself? Guys, we're not any of those things. And yet, God lovingly and intentionally brings saved sinners into his forever family. Instead of debating the purpose of his sovereignty and salvation, let's wonder at it. Let's be humbled by it. There's no room for arrogance here. Zero room for arrogance here. Somehow, these doctrines have carried with them a weight of arrogance that we need to destroy. There's no arrogance found here. Paul says, not that any, we're saved by grace, not that anyone should boast. No one should. Let's wonder at it. Let's be humbled by it. Let's worship because of it. Just want to point out one more thing while I'm being hard on everybody. Verse 5, look at what it says. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will. What is it that pleases God in this verse? Predestining sinners through adoption to be heirs with Jesus. That act of him gives him pleasure, brings him joy. So if God gets pleasure from predestining sinners to be saved, why are people so upset about it? Why are we so opposed to it? This is a hard statement, but I I need to say it anyway. If you don't like the doctrine of predestination and election, then you need to know that you are fundamentally opposed and disagreeing with something that clearly pleases God. It brings him pleasure. If God... (laughs) receives pleasure from this doctrine, why don't we? I think, I think often it's, it's because of the pride in our hearts. I think it's, it's often because of a misunderstanding of who God really is. At the end of the day, God does this for his own pleasure because he likes it. 
And he's good and right to do that because he's God. He predestines because he likes to. There's absolutely room for discussion here, brothers and sisters. But I hope that we can take God at his word this morning and as we continue on in Ephesians. Guys, believers specifically, this should just cause us to fall on our faces in worship. To think that God's grace extended to even me. We sang this earlier. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can pull us from the grave. That's where we are apart from Christ. Buried and dead in our sin. It has to be God that pulls us out of this. Believers, this should cause us to fall on our faces in worship. That God would choose even me. Non-believer, Guys, this should cause you to fall on your knees in repentance. God, would you save a sinner like me? And the truth is, the gospel teaches that he absolutely will. The moment that we call out for him, if you're out there thinking, well, I guess that settles it, because God could never choose somebody like me to be saved. And maybe some of you are thinking that this morning. God could never choose me. I've messed up too bad I know I'm going to mess up too bad. Whatever the thought might be, we, we just doubt it. Let me remind you of what Paul says over in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Very simply, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So you're there telling me, I, I, God can't choose me because of how ungodly I am. Guess who Christ died for? You, the ungodly. So the fact that somebody, maybe you, can admit that you are ungodly, that immediately qualifies you for salvation. You understand that? If you can say, God would never choose me, you can be saved. And our prayer is that you would. Listen to this. I don't remember who said this, but they said the law, all the rules, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. The gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. You don't have to despair today. For the sinner saved by grace, there's no need to despair because Christ died for you. You've been given all these blessings, wonderful blessings in Christ. And we're going to talk more and more about these in Ephesians. God is calling you now. And if you respond in faith and you believe, as Paul says in 113, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world by a good and gracious God. And so our prayer, our call as Christians is to say, if, if you've been wrapped up in sin and you think there's no hope, you're wrong. There's hope in Christ. And so that would be my message for you today if that's how you feel. And if you are bouncing around in that scale of one through ten between your assurance of God ranging on your own behavior be free of that brothers and sisters that is legalism and that's not how you've been saved if God has saved you it's not because there's anything good in you it's because of his grace in your life and so we walk now and we live based on that grace in our lives and this is how we can learn to love the doctrines of predestination and election that Paul hits on here. It's because it's all of grace. 
and all of us are undeserving. And so we just direct all of our attention and focus and love and admiration and praise back to the Father who's loved us so deeply. Let's pray. God, there are, there, there are probably still questions bouncing around in some of our minds right now. Well, God, if, if this is true, then what about this? And what about this? And, and Lord, you're, you're big enough to handle those questions. Your, your word speaks truth into those d- discussions and conversations. And so I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that those conversations would happen and we would, every one of us, constantly go back to not what I was taught or even not how this makes me feel. But we would go back and rest our understanding of you, rest our the doctrine of what we believe solely on your word. The truth that you have given us and revealed in Christ Jesus, now given to us in your word. Lord, as, as we reflect more on this and sing now, God, be in us, be around us, convict us of sin, remind us of your spirit within us that has made us holy and blameless before you. And now as your, as your children, your adopted, beloved children, we don't have to perform, Lord. We just have to respond and live out of the grace that you've already given. And so I pray that you would move in our hearts in that way today in Christ's name.